Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The fact is I'm a cheerleader for this country. I love our country. And I don't want people to be frightened. I don't want to create panic, as you say. And uh, certainly I'm not going to uh, drive uh, this country or the world into a frenzy. The way to avoid a panic is to show leadership, to say this is what the challenge is. We're going to use the best scientific evidence that is available to us to contain it. I'm not really sure why people don't get it. Donald Trump is a racist. Everybody who technically knows him is telling you that the man is a racist. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So Bill Barr's Injustice Department bigfooted in on Trump's er, legal problems once again. Now, legal problems for Trump aren't merely legal problems. They're not like, you know, late rent checks. They're better described as a shadow of the violent crimes he committed in the 1990s when he raped the immensely accomplished journalist E. Jean Carroll. Why don't I say allegedly raped? Well, because E. Jean, who's been a guest on this show, is a friend of mine. She is profoundly credible, and I believe her as an intimate eyewitness to Trump's violent crime, that she's witness to a crime of which she was also the victim. So imagine if your buddy came home from a bar shaken up and said he'd been hit. You'd have no reason to doubt him, and that's how I feel about E. Jean. But because I'm a journalist, I even did due diligence and spoke to Egean's friends, whom she told about the rape at the time. And so since they say he did it, Egean Carroll says he did it. She's got no history of lying and no reason to lie about this. And Trump says he did not do it. And he's got nothing but a history of lying and every reason in the world to lie about this. I don't use alleged and I never will. Ejean was also defamed on Twitter by the rapist who also happens to be president of the United States. There should be no world in which a person is abused at the hands of another only to have that abuser defame her with infantile taunts about her appearance and her character. Can you just for a second imagine going through this? What Nancy Pelosi and Marie Yavanovitch and Robert Mueller have all endured and an endless parade of people that Trump has constantly jabbed at simply for doing their job. Now, to be vituperated from the Twitter pulpit of the president, this is, of course, our very world, and it happens now every day. People who die for the country are chumps. People who aim for reform in Ukraine will go through some things. People who do their jobs as journalists are nasty and corrupt. And of course, other politicians, especially women, deserve to be jailed and hanged. This is the world Trump has made. And then there's Bill Barr. Bill Barr in the Roy Cohn slot has said that Trump's decision to defame one of the women he raped is well within his scope of presidential behavior. And that means that our Department of Justice, which we pay for, has jumped in to play Alan Dershowitz on this occasion. 
Trump evidently was doing his job to say that the woman he raped, now radiant at 76, is ugly. What is the job of president such that Bill Barr thinks this is part of it? (sighs) My guest today knows the business of lying for Trump well. He did it himself in 1987 when he wrote the book The Art of the Deal, which bears Trump's name, although Trump never even read it, much less wrote it. Tony Schwartz admits now that he whitewashed Trump's character and career. He takes responsibility for his part in Trump's rise to power. He now donates the royalties from that book to causes for immigrants and refugees. So Trumpites, if you're listening, if you buy your Neon Gods book, your money goes to refugees. Anyway, Tony, who was once my boss, has a new book called Dealing with the Devil, My Mother, Trump, and Me. It's a short audiobook about how Tony's time with Trump represented a crisis in his life. Does this sound familiar? Our time with Trump as Americans represents a crisis in our lives. And how all of that for Tony led him to reflect on his past, atone for what he saw as his misdeeds, and revise his moral and personal commitments. Tony, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thank you. I think you were here with my colleague who originated the role of uh, Trumpcast host, like a Broadway role, Jacob Weisberg, early when either Jane Mayer's piece came out or something you wrote came out about writing the art of the deal with Donald Trump. I can't remember the exact details. So much time has gone by. I wish I could say it's flown by. It has not flown by. It has been a slog. Anyway, here we are, 2020. And you have another book sort of about Trump. And what I was going to say to you before we started is that your book reminds me a little bit of Mary Trump's book in the sense that both of you came to the fact of the Trump presidency with a relationship with Donald Trump and a set of psychological and political commitments. And all of that was reopened when Trump was made president. And I think in that way, you're a proxy for so many Americans. You know, you were the ones that woke up sobbing after the election, or at least in a state of absolute confusion, and had everything you ever believed suddenly up for grabs. I know what happened with me. It's happened to so many people on the show, including evaluating their relationship with their parents, their relationship with money, their relationship with education, their relationship with corruption, their relationship with the left and the right of politics, with the Republican Party in general, with the law, with the Justice Department, all those things. And I know this happened to you. And in particular, it affected how you reflected on your relationship with your mother. And I think I've now set up set the stage for your book and why it's relevant for today. So talk us through this book, which is out as an audiobook. Well, it's a book about three of the primary devils that I've had to deal with or wrestle with over the course of my life, my mother, Trump, and myself. I have some other ones, but this book focuses on those three. Virginia, it's really about how I moved on from writing The Art of the Deal by reckoning with the Trump in me and what it took me to, or how I responded to the experience, which was a profound, and not in necessarily a good way, a profound experience of working alongside Trump, and what it prompted me to do in my life. And I think it prompted me to make some pretty dramatic changes. And as you just said, to 
reflect much more deeply on a lot of the things that doing that book brought up for me. I may be the only living human being who can say, even with a modicum of truth, that Trump led me to the Dharma. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe Robert Wright, he has a book out about being a Buddhist in Trump times, but I think he already was. And I know that he, through your life, you know, you were kind of on a walkabout after finishing The Art of the Deal with him. I should say to listeners, I worked for Tony Schwartz on a book that, by the way, gets short shrift in your new book, but this is an autobiography of another mogul that we both did together in a kind of crazy adventure after The Art of the Deal and after the book that followed that followed The Art of the Deal. So there's a book in between, and that's the what really matters. So maybe talk a little bit about what really matters because, you know, it's one of your best books and it doesn't get enough attention. Thank you. So what really matters grew directly out of the experience of writing the Trump book. Essentially, it was this. I woke up with a book that was number one. I was about to earn, and I knew I was, more money in a few months than I'd earned in the entire length of my journalistic career. I was going to have a freedom to choose whatever I wanted to write about next because I wouldn't be under so much pressure financially. I mean, it was not, I would definitely today not call it the ideal outcome, but it was a form of the American dream. Mm -hmm. And what was stunning for me is that what I mostly felt in the aftermath of Trump, despite all this that was going on, was empty. And I think it was that I'd always had in my mind that if I could have enough success, if I could get enough recognition, that I would feel better about myself, that I would feel good. And now I actually had done it. And what I learned, as most people who have big external successes of some kind or another learn, is that it didn't solve the problem. That the same demons that I had before, I still had, except I no longer believed that I could solve them by by writing a best-selling book. And that inventory, in a way, took the form, the first iteration of it was this book, What Really Matters, which partly that led you to the Dharma, as you say, and also to a robust meditation practice that you've had ever since I I knew you. Yeah, well, Trump led me to what really matters is what happened, Mm. is that I literally sort of stopped in my tracks and I said, is this the life I want to live? And I don't mean doing multiple books with scoundrels. I mean, (laughs) do I want to live a life, first of all, in which uh, the main thing I do is describe other people's experience and not necessarily be a player myself? And do I want to do journalism, even honorable journalism, that I'm not convinced adds value in the world, which I was not convinced about the journalism I was doing even before I wrote the Trump book. So that's what really prompted me to write What Really Matters, to start looking for a way of life that was different than what I was referring to as the American dream, Mm -hmm. that had something more to do with what's going on inside me or what's going inside you, and that took account of the interior life and how it influenced how I showed up in the world. That's why that book, I think, is especially pivotal. So you also, after writing The Art of the Deal, I know you got some flack for it. You got some good reviews for from those in the, you know, would-be liberal establishment of publishing saying, 
you know, that you had managed to make this kind of fun, bar- roguish, Barnaby kind of character um, out of Trump. And it's certainly, the art of the deal is certainly very readable. On the other hand, John Kenneth Galbraith, and I had forgotten this till I encountered this in, in your current book, said that you had sort of done a grave disservice. I mean, he was wrong that you had hurt Trump, obviously. Trump's biggest successes were ahead of him. But that you had put more than lipstick on a pig, that you had kind of whitewashed something that, and if it was Galbraith writing, it must have been that economically and politically, Trump was not a good figure for the nation. What was that combo like? Were you able to think, well, who cares? Like, I'm laughing all the way to my limousine and my fancy new house, John Kenneth Galbraith, you know, where's your invitation to Trump Tower? Or did you think to yourself, sinking feeling, you know, I have done something somehow wrong? The latter in spades. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm looking out my window right now from my office uh, in Riverdale in the Bronx, and uh, across the way is the house that Christopher Lehman Hout, the Times book reviewer for many years, lived in. And, and Lehman Hout, who I barely knew, but I could see his house, um, yes. had written initially this exuberantly positive review of The Art of the Deal. And I thought when I came out, which was before Galbraith, I thought, oh my God, I got over on him. Like, what, what's going on? Why yeah. do you say these things? Right. Sometimes it's worse when people don't instantly see through you because you think, I could get away with this forever. Well, I don't want to be seen through because I don't want to believe there's a, a, a through to be seen through. Yes. I want people to see what's actually there. But what was actually there at that time was not my best self in, in, in any way that I could imagine. So Galbraith, writes this review in the New York Review of Books. First of all, that even astonished me. Like, John Kenneth Albright, the New York Review of Books about my Trump book. And then it was eviscerating. It was just, uh, it was a, you know, ultimate Galbraith kind of put down of the book, of me, of Trump, everything. And my response to it was, it slayed me. Not because I thought I was angry that he was wrong, but because I knew he was right. Mm. And and it just brought home to me, and that this was around the same time, actually, Virginia, that and you and I know this well, but uh, some of your some of your listeners won't. That the, the magazine of that era, the sort of hip magazine of that era, was Spy. It was a yep. magazine that was uh, launched by Kurt Anderson and Graydon Carter, who went on to become the editor of Vanity Fair. And I became a primary target of Spy. I became the quintessential sellout journalist. In fact, they started referring to me. They always had named nicknames for people, probably where Trump got the idea for nicknames. And my nickname was former journalist Tony Schwartz. And it was devastating to me for exactly the same reason as Galbraith's review was devastating. I thought that's true. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
just like you are with Michael Cohen and with Joe Walsh and with so many people who've been on Anthony Scaramucci, so many people who've been on the show, you just had your cold, nagging doubts about Trump and your kind of crisis and come to Dharma moment, we'll call it that, since I think Jesus was pretty absent um, in uh, so early. And what's also interesting is some of the people in journalism, including Graydon Carter, I'm going to spare Kurt Anderson, who was just on the show from this. So after calling um, Trump a short-fingered vulgarian and calling you a former journalist, and acting as though spy was set apart as if it were you know the the national lampoon or or you know speaking for this lefty vision over and against commercial culture or vanity and so on and spy sort of did that but what's interesting is like so many of us it got enchanted with its subjects and i definitely would argue that graydon carter at vanity fair former serious editor graydon carter at some point he turned into just doing it for the cover image. And then, you know, maybe one of the crises there is when he killed Vicki Ward's scoop about Jeffrey Epstein and about his his child molestation and ran a story without it. And that seemed to speak to, and I'm not, I don't think this is, Graydon just exemplified a certain period where the powerful were suddenly not people you were like throwing stones at from your snickery little high, you know, redoubt with your college friends, smarty college friends, but they were the people you wanted to come to your parties or you opened a restaurant or you wanted to go to the, see them in clubs or you, you, you know, saw them in the Hamptons. And that's how Vanity Fair got that cozy feeling. And to everyone's astonishment, Trump was part of that. And later with a, another generation, Ivanka Trump was part of that. You know, maybe a clownish figure in the corner, but who could tell the clowns from the not clowns? First of all, journalists are, you know, seduced by clowns and buffoons because they are saying outrageous things. And what journalists are always looking for is somebody to say something that they shouldn't have said. So yeah. uh, I think there was an alliance between journalists and Trump. Uh, Frank Rich has written about it quite brilliantly in, in, his, in a New York piece about Roy Cohn. There was a conspiracy, an unintended conspiracy, between uh, the media and Trump that has continued to this day. There's certainly some really great journalism about Trump that has come out over the last several years. But the attraction to repeating Trump's most outrageous statements and claims has not diminished at all. And if I think back to that time, and, uh, and, and I, what it really reminds me of is a piece, I was working at the New York Times, let's say 1982, and it was the uh, 10th anniversary of Woodstock, so I might be wrong on the actual exact date, but you know, it was early 1980s, whenever, whenever Woodstock was, and on the 10th anniversary, one of the editors at the Times assigned a bunch of people to a series about the legacy of Woodstock. And I remember that I did uh, one of those pieces, and uh, I went back and interviewed people who had been at Woodstock and then compared what they felt and thought then with what they were living like in 10 years later. And they had all, like Graydon Carter, they'd all sold out. They'd all entered the establishment. Mm. They'd all embraced the very things that they stood so firmly against when they were younger. Yeah. You know, one of the things I'm really reckoning with this in the, 
in this book is uh, tell the truth to yourself. It's hmm. who are you? How do you really acknowledge and accept all of who you are? Taking the perspective, and I say this in the book, taking the perspective, as I do, that the worst things, one of the most transformative things for me in my life over the last 10 years has been the recognition that the worst things that people said about me, and Spy said awful things, but they weren't the only ones, and that I have said to m about myself are not only true, they're way truer than I could ever bear to, to feel, to see. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. saving grace, however, they're not all that's true. And the notion mm -hmm. that you are either good or bad, that you're right or wrong, that you're, that you're noble or ignoble, is such a binary perspective on life and so dehumanizing. The degree to which I've been able to accept all of who I am, and I, you know, you never do that completely, your blind spots remain, but the degree to which I've been able to do that has left me nothing to defend. It's yeah. the only the opportunity to address what I otherwise would defend. Yeah. In 1987, 1988, which is just around the time that the that Art of the Deal came out, there was a small coterie of people who worked alongside Trump, what he called his company. But it was just a few people, of which yeah. brother Robert Trump was one. And one by one, he threw them out. Robert himself quit, but he quit because of the way Donald treated him. So it, he might as well have been thrown out. This is the late younger brother of Trump who recently died. Mary Trump describes his mistreatment. And Trump referred to him as his, quote, best friend. That is you know, such an example of the narrow, perverse, distorted, and self-deceiving perspective Trump has on the world. First of yeah. all, he dismissed and denigrated and made miserable his brother, Robert. Mm -hmm. Second, his brother, Robert, hated him. Hmm. They had no relationship that was, uh, and particularly after he left, no relationship of consequence. And of course, Trump has no relationship of consequence with anyone. So that little group of people who Trump threw out of his organization, then of course, he would do that continuously over the next 30 years, up to and including today, to today, built something they called the Survivors Club. And wow. it, it was meeting to talk about the experience of the abuse, the abusive ways that Trump treated them and its effect on them. So this idea of my going and, uh, you know, advising members of the Trump administration on how to deal with uh, the aftermath of their experience with Trump actually could have started 30 years ago. Way uh, back then. Yes. You know, slightly after you went through this, I also worked with Mark Singer as a fact-checking a book of his, an old New Yorker writer who I think is now, has a piece in the New Yorker right now. And while I was working on this book with him, he wrote a piece that has been published as an ebook since this because all the writing about Trump is newly of interest. But anyway, sometime in the 90s, he wrote about Trump's divorce from Marla Maples. And Tina Brown asked him to write about Trump. And he was an you know, old school talk of the town writer. So writing about a celebrity as it was for you or a celebrity douchebag like Trump was a stretch for him. But he went and he came back with a very modest piece. And Tina said, I remember this, Make show us what it's like to be around him, right? Like physically 
what it's like. Very, very Tony Schwartz thing. What is the mind-body effect that Trump has on you? And Mark remembered, very un-New Yorker moment, and it's a beautiful moment in his piece about Trump, that he felt so physically cold around Trump. He said he was unmolested by the rumbling of a soul. I remember that. Trump was. That he went down on a yacht and went down to his little stateroom and his his bedroom and just curled up in fetal position. Just, you know, at that moment that the chill hand of life or death was on his heart. And it's, it's just an amazing passage because I, I have talked to so many, and I will say men, I don't know what will happen, what will become of Hope Hicks or Kellyanne Conway if she ever has a, has a revelation. But the men who've left Trump or left, um, I- including Trump trolls, by the way, who've been on this show, are very shaken very shaken. And the return to fetal position, which you chronicle in your book, seems like part of this. This is my roundabout way of bringing this to your mother. But how did Trump and the memory of working with him bring you to fetal position, bring you back to the position of being, you know, the son of your very distinctive mother? So the fetal position as it applied in my life in 1988, 1989, right after the Trump book came out, and it was, you know, both a bestseller and an object of derision, both, was my, just my deep sense of unhappiness about where I'd let my life go, how I'd chosen to direct my life. So I think of it, not to be unbelievably cliched about it, but... I think about it as sort of the darkest hour before dawn, you know, Mm. that Mm -hmm. the darkest hour is before dawn, is before you have the breakthrough. And I really do, I mean, I apologize and I have, you know, over and over and no amount of it is enough um, for having chosen to do that book and for the role I played in making Trump into someone who could be elected president. Uh, there's no there's no overcoming that that's a kind of a horrific thing to carry into you know the rest that I will carry through the rest of my life but I'm also aware that he awakened me that mm. he gave me an opportunity to um atone and to repent I mean these religious images really do uh, you know come up for me that he prompted me to say Never again will I do something that I don't believe has the potential to add good and add value in the world. Now, I didn't stick by that 100%, but it's now 32 years later, and I would say, you know, the overwhelming majority of those years, I have indeed devoted to that principle. Mm -hmm. And when I haven't, I've felt terrible about it. I want to return to your mother. So what made you vulnerable to Trump's aggression, to his semi-seduction? And and I will say, I'm getting this here. I'm in an M dash now. I'm getting this because Ann Applebaum had a, an amazing piece in The Atlantic. We had her on this show to talk about it, about collaborationism and why people collaborate and then why they dissent. Um, and it's very scattershot in her account. Um, she's, you know, she's talking about in the Soviet Union, she's talking about in East Germany, that 
you know, sometimes you would just dissent because you just didn't feel like singing the national anthem that day. And then you found yourself sitting during it. And then you found yourself hanging out with people who sat during it. And sooner or later, you were dissenting. And collaborating happened some sort of the same way. You know, you just fall into it and think, well, I need to get through this period in my life. I need the money. I need the security. I have a new baby. And then suddenly you were working with the regime. So I think those sorting out why did I do this? Who am I that I did this? Who am I that I was vulnerable to it is both worthwhile, but also doesn't it kind of allow you to have all the complexity of your own motivations if you're just looking for because I am a larcenous piece of shit as your answer. So tell me what made you vulnerable. That's my question. Well, as I say in the book, let me frame it in terms of Trump first. Trump and I grew up wounded in very similar ways. You know, we each had a parent who was harsh and fiercely critical and demanding, my mother and his father. And we each had a parent who was who was essentially negligent, my father and his mother. Mm -hmm. And both of us longed, I was aware of it, I think, more than he was, but both of us longed for approval from that harsher parent. And at the same time, went to extraordinary lengths to build identities that were separate from that powerful figure in our lives, which is a window into my attraction to Trump, Mm -hmm. is that in a variety of ways, I wanted and needed to separate myself from a mother who felt overwhelming and suffocating. Let me just say briefly about my mother, Felice Felice Schwartz. She was a very complex figure, and I I hope I draw her that way in the book, because she was in the world a incredibly uh, effective social activist and an honorable person who was an early fighter for civil rights and and a prominent one, and then for women, beginning even before Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Escape. But she at home, at home, she was a nightmare. She was, as I said earlier, relentlessly critical. I never felt good enough. In fact, not only did I not feel good enough, but I felt bad, like not I feel bad, but, although that was true too, but a bad person. And there was no measuring up, even though, of course, I desperately wanted her love. Who doesn't want the love of one's mother? But I had an equally strong impulse to separate myself from her in any way I could. And one of the most fundamental insights I had writing this book, I didn't have it, sort of bizarrely, for the first 30 years after writing the book, Mm-hmm. is that I chose to write the book to stick my finger in her eye yeah. because I knew she would hate the idea. And yeah. that was a true separation. She was repelled by Trump, God bless her, repelled by Trump, uh, you know, long before most people even knew who he was. Mm-hmm. And so one of the motivations to write that book was to stand against her. But a second one was that I believed, I think, somewhere in my consciousness that this had a real potential to become a very successful book Mm -hmm. and that it could win me the attention, the praise, the economic security that I didn't have. And so part of it was believing the same thing that Trump to this day continues to believe, which is, you know, if I accumulate enough money, if I if I get enough power, if I have enough fame, um, I'll finally feel okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. And 
you know, he, I learned very early and he has still hasn't learned it, that it's bullshit, that it, it doesn't work that way. And that, yeah. you know, the more you seek that external uh, source of validation, the less you get it. It's very much like an addict who keeps chasing the high, you yeah. know, you keep upping the dose. Well, he's now up the dose all the way to being president. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And having he's got so much of the dose in him that some of the white stuff actually flies out of his nose. He can't even contain it. It seems like. But in any case, yes, all the way to the president of the United States. And this is he's clearly not a euphoric figure who is enjoying the fruits of his labor as president. He looks furious and like there must be something more and he's still persecuted. Yes, that's a great line, though, Virginia, when yeah. you say that. Oh, good. I love a line in your piece where you were, I think it's a, it's a line of someone else, but it's a line that you make so much of. It was a conversation you had with some incarcerated uh, con man hustler who said to you, this is, I think when you were in college at University of Michigan, you're the easiest person in the world to hustle. This guy said to you, you can tell us about him because you have larceny in your heart. I just did not see that coming. Tell me about your larceny in your heart and how he how how he recognized that in you and why it would be, you know, to to catch a thief you have to be a thief that you would be easy to hustle because you had this kind of thievery or or yes. sympathy for a kind of rapacity. I mean a lot of things to say about it. You know, first of all, it's, it's, it's young in the shadow. It's that, you know, you, you see in others and Trump is the master of this. You see in others, the very things that you most disown and despise in yourself. So you yeah. project them onto another person. And that certainly uh, was true of me. I was a hustler. I was very ambitious. I had a very clear sense that if I could do this, this, and this in the world, not let people get in the way of it, then I'd finally feel okay. So I was willing, and you know, doing the Trump book was the final expression of to put my, you know, the, the inkling of a soul that Mark Singer refers to Trump not having. I was willing, even un- and unconsciously, to put it aside in the service of these ambitions. So um, I, he was absolutely right that uh, I was someone who he could hustle. Because yeah. I, was, I was looking at him, this, name, this guy's name, and he was in a jail that I was writing about. This guy's name was Putty Bowles. And, Best name. And he was, yeah, what a great name. And he was such a slick, charming, charismatic guy yeah. that, I, you know, the fact that he was in jail for having robbed someone for the 17th time yeah. was, was subordinated to my kind of getting a kick out of him. And mm. interestingly... If I go to Trump, I had a dream about Trump that was recurrent after he was elected. I haven't had it, thank God, in a long time, but it's a very, it's all variations on this. The dream is that I'm reunited with Trump in some way. I end up meeting him. And I end up going, walking up to him, and he says something like, You get it, Tony, right? You know Mm. what? Like, you're, you get that this is all a hustle for me because he wouldn't have said this, but because you're a hustler too. Wow. Yeah. So that dream is an example of uh, the shadow alive in the unconscious that that part of me 
that I continue to disdain, but now acknowledge, Mm -hmm. um, still lives inside me. I have to manage it. You know, I think the larger point is we all do. Yeah. We are all capable of self-deception and we're all capable of doing things that we wouldn't be proud of. And we all have done things that we're not proud of. Now, by the way, Trump hasn't done anything he's not proud of because he isn't uh, capable of conscience. He isn't capable of seeing that he's done anything wrong. Yeah. And then he was able to blot out his losses. Sometimes I think that the the mystery of Trump is not how deceitful he is or how depraved, but just that he's lived this long. <laughs> that usually someone is 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 ground out either like as either as a social exile or they, you know, eat burgers and and ride in golf carts so long that they have heart attacks. I think in some of the fir- very first articles including one of the ones you cited in the book, um, that there are references to his his lifestyle means he's not going to last long. The cardiac arrest will bring him down any minute. Um, and somehow something in his cells has allowed him to persist and do so much damage. You know, usually a human, one way or another, hits bottom before this by getting sick, by landing in jail, by getting exiled, uh, by, you know, being a social pariah. And none of those things hit Trump. The fact that he wasn't a social pariah is, and I think you and Frank Rich are absolutely right, in part because in New York anyway, he seemed like someone to worth kind of entertaining, worth inviting to parties. Uh, you know, the Clintons inviting him and Melania to their to their what was that? Their did he go to their wedding? No, no, no. Melania's wedding, yeah, it was his wedding. Oh, sorry. Tried, yes, the Clintons went to their wedding. That's right. And how that happened, I think we'll be wondering about for a long time. All right. Since you were willing to sort of go to these archetypes and you're a lot you refer to Carl Jung. It's like we're we're in a safe space here. <laughs> I see in your relationship with your mother and Trump in this triangle, a relationship that a lot of now Trumpites have with Trump, which is Oh, and incidentally, Michael Cohen also. So uh, a neighbor of Michael Cohen's was t- Cohen was telling me that in Long Island, in these immigrant Holocaust families, that some of them were gangsters and some of them were very respectable kind of Ivy League doctors and lawyers. And that his his father fell in the doctor category, just a mensch. And that Cohen wanted to rebel against the goodness of his father by being this gangster pimp figure you know, by hustling, because I don't have to just, you know, you're just trying to keep me down with your, you know, your sweetness. And I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to make some money. You know, you're not, you don't have a Bentley, you know, dad. And I see that in your relationship with your very lefty mother, who saw Trump's vulgarity. And what could be more fun as a young man that say to your mother, you know, I don't need a nanny anymore. You know, once I can buy and sell you, then you won't be so judgmental of me, will you? Or at least the judgment won't sting that much. And Trumpites seem to project this kind of monstrous and often mother figure, a Hillary Clinton or now Kamala Harris kind of judging them. Or there was the Michelle Obama can't tell us how to eat. You know, she can't tell us how to be healthy. We're going to just go for broke on this on this shadow side, as you say, Trump who's the opposite of any kind of principled upbringing, any kind of, even with your hard to please mother, she did have a set of ideals and standards 
that if you wanted to wipe them out all at once, going to work for Trump was probably a good idea. And yeah. I flirted with the right, too, by the way. My parents were far left. And when I was 18, I thought there was nothing funnier than registering as a Republican and then ultimately, you know, and, and at least professing support for Ronald Reagan. Yeah. So I get it. I don't usually defend myself against anything someone says to me that, about what was wrong with doing Trump. But I do want to separate myself from Michael Cohen and Anthony. Oh, yes. You know, it's funny. Anthony Scaramucci does this, too. I'm a Cohen fan. But anyway, yes, I'm appalled by him. And because his, you know, I'm not saying that this is forgivable, the choice I made, but I made it when I was a 32 year old guy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Donald Trump was not running for president. He was barely uh, proving himself as a real estate developer. Yeah. But Scaramucci and Cohen, these are people who pursued, you know, all of this awful stuff and and enabled somebody like Trump for 60 years, or, you know, mm-hmm. 50 years. So there is a difference. But, you know, the greatest gift I got in a way, or one of the gifts I got from my mother was to be tortured by my I wasn't oblivious to it. I didn't get great pleasure from doing the Trump book. I got guilt and confusion. And, you know, I I, I share in the book, in my journal, I share notes from a journal. I threw out 30 years of journals at some point in my life just on a whim, which I regret. And the only one it turned out I kept was the journal of the year I wrote The Art of the Deal. I didn't do it on purpose. It was just an accident. Okay. And so I quote from that journal. And if you, you remember in the book, I am tortured all the way through writing that book. I know it's not good. I know it's wrong. I'm trying to rationalize it. And this notion of how we justify, I mean, this is actually, I put as another really critical insight in my life that a lot of us spend a lot of time justifying and rationalizing and minimizing and denying and projecting onto others about the things that we find unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And some people are better at it than others. And, you know, I was pretty good at it. I could, you know, I'm not a smart guy and I could come up with a, you know, explanation for something. But I've come to realize late in my life that it's an inner lawyer. And that inner lawyer is not actually your friend, even though he's defending you. It's Mm. basically this inner lawyer that comes along to defend you no matter what. Mm. They will come up with something. It's like the the most principle-free lawyer who goes, yeah, I know you murdered people, but look, they didn't arrest you fairly Mm. or whatever. Mm, Yeah, an Alan Dershowitz figure. You get the best defense. Yeah, the power of that inner lawyer I have systematically sought to diminish. So that I'm asking myself the question now, very consciously, is this the right thing to do? Or is this the person I want to be? Not Mm -hmm. can I justify doing X? Right. And that's a very big difference. And it's not an American, you know, it's not uh, an instinct that enough of us have. Mm -hmm. 
I just want to say that when I knew you, which I think is was what the mid or end of the 90s, I mean, when we were working together, you were quite explicit about just so that I can bear witness since your journals are not there for the whole time. (laughs) You were quite explicit about having had this moment. And as I say, it was it was some years after the art of the deal came out. But, you know, I think of you as always self-searching and sometimes self-savaging around this moment. And also, I mean, just just the earnest meditation on what's the purpose of life and who you are, I think has ne- has never been absent from you. And the book makes clear, quoting your journals in the period, citing your particular relationship with Trump, that you felt uneasy and cold all along. And this is the only thing I will say, one more thing I'll say in defense of Michael Cohen. We haven't heard from Gary Cohn. We haven't heard from Kirsten Nielsen. We haven't heard from a lot of the- John Kelly. John Kelly, right? Except maybe in leaks. And H.R. Haldeman. I mean, you name it. You know, and then there was Jim Comey and 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 who we have heard from. And to the extent that we've heard from these people, you know, everybody was too late. There's nobody whose real revelation came at the right time. Unless, you know- You've, you had heard of the discrimination lawsuits against Trump and his father in the 60s and, you know, decided that he you would never shake his hand after that. Or you, like a lot of black guests we've had on the show, just took one look at him and saw him saw him as the racist real estate developer he was. But for almost everyone else, we came in as adults and we had a moment where you know, I met him at a party once. And do you think I spit at him? No, of course I shook his hand. And then there are people who went much further and enabled all of it. And now they're dealing with the fallout of it. But what I know from talking to doing these exit interviews with people is that just about everyone found it wrenching to spend the time with him. Yes. And, you know, and I mean, hardly any of them thought this is just a great old time. Not Marla Maples, not Ivana, not, uh, you know, not Melania, not Don Jr., who spent a year not talking to him and he allegedly slapped. So anyone that we think just got to have the, you know, was having a great time. Um, I think we're wrong. I also think someone like Kirsten Nielsen, who, you know, facilitated the caging kids at the border and defended those actions must just be in a moral crisis orders of magnitude more than maybe, the one you were in after the art of the maybe, deal. Maybe, and maybe she, her inner lawyer is working overtime to justify it and rationalize it and, True. it and explain it. And I suspect that's more likely. Um, yeah. But, I, I guess what I want to say about Cohen is his is not. And if you read the, um, the introduction to his, his book, okay. I mean, he is, it's, it's, it's like he was holding it together for so long and then he just let it collapse. And he's even at ease. Now he's back in prison. And he's even at ease when he talks to uh, and able to to smile. And, and his physical body seems more integrated now that he's completely hit bottom. Yeah. And he said, you know, he says, I know you don't like me in the book. Of course, you don't like me. And nor should you. And, you know, I'll have to do esteemable acts to get any kind of esteem back. And we'll see if I can. And, you know, I betrayed my family. I betrayed every, everyone I believe. And I'll be one, figuring this out forever, yeah. you know, how this happened. And I may be the only person that wants to give, give Michael Cohen a break. But I want to give him a break just because there's a part of him in all of us 
that yes. falls for something. And that I completely share. As right? Made. And you and he have probably been the most... And it didn't. You didn't have to go to prison. How about that? That's something you have over. You know, you a psychic prison maybe for a few years, but not. You know, you're not just sitting in Otisville, whatever it is. But you know, that's why I think you're a figure for so many people. And and the last remaining supporters who can't break away from him, I think I probably will never forgive them at the, you know, because now they know the extent of the exterminationist racism, the lies about coronavirus. But I, but I have a great pity for their brokenness. Well, you know, I've had 30 years to do penance and 30 years to do atonement. And you can decide whether you think I've done it or not. Um, But what I, at the heart of what I've done, both first for myself and in an ongoing way for myself, but also running the company I now I've run for the last 20 years called the Energy Project is we go into organizations and try to help, um, you know, people across organizations uh, live more satisfying lives um, and do some of the work that most of us don't do, some of the introspective work. And, you know, if there's nothing else that I uh, either you know, leave as a legacy, you know, to my kids, to my grandkids, to anybody who reads stuff I've done, that I would want more. It would be like, this. these are the words uh, I'd like on my tombstone. He owned it. Tony Schwartz is a prolific journalist and author. He's He didn't just write The Art of the Deal. He wrote What Really Matters, Work in Progress, The Power of Full Engagement, and a book called Be Excellent at Anything. Thanks so much for being here, Tony. And thanks for having me. It was wonderful. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Give us a healthy, happy rating on your podcast app and then come to us on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then, hey, join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. Do it or I'll get your favorite influencers to come at you on Instagram and tell you to sign up. Plus, members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. But do it for your conscience. You'll be supporting our work. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by a magnificent influencer, Melissa Kaplan, and engineered by spectacular other influencer, Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I'm not an influencer, but thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>